All right. Good morning, everyone. Welcome again to our Sunday worship here at Grace Hill. Uh, always encouraged to see new faces or faces that have been coming out the past couple of weeks. We want to welcome you. And yeah, well, it's always a privilege to come together, whether it's in here or in the theater, just to share God's word with you. Again, this is the last time we're going to be in the cafeteria for the foreseeable future. So look forward to joining you back in our normal meeting location a few steps down at the theater. But again, whether it's here or there, uh, God is worthy and uh, of our deserving of our praise and worship. So very glad to do that. Um, yeah, a couple of things just talking about the announcements. So the book clubs, today's the last day. Highly, I think I've been pushing it every single week. I really, really encourage you, if you are remotely interested in checking this church out, that is literally the easiest, most organic way to kill two birds with one stone. Talk about intentional conversations, but also get to know people on a more intimate level. So if you have even an inclination at all, please do sign up for that. I think you can't go wrong. Uh, generosity bags, I think that's just super, super cool. And it happens to tie really well to today's message as well. So I do hope that by the end of the message, there's even more of a desire to maybe want to take part in this. And FYI, again, this is just one small piece of the larger picture that we are praying towards as a church, which is we want to really be activated as a church that is merciful and caring for the needy and the poor, which is a theme we've been seeing throughout the book of James. And so again, this is very grounded in scripture. So hopefully the Lord gives us wisdom and opportunities to grow in doing this in a more wholesome way. And then lastly but not least, the women's praise and prayer, man, it would be so cool to see most of our sisters there. Again, I think more than just uh, anything else, it's the opportunity to come together as sisters in the church to fellowship, get to know each other. And it's just rare to have an opportunity to do that in an intentional way. So I highly encourage you to go, uh, whether you're new or you've been here for a while, uh, please uh, save that day on July 14th to go there and we look forward to that. Well, that's it for the announcements. Again, if you're joining us for the first time, we've been going through a sermon series in the book of James. And then week after week, same intro, which is James is a very practical book. Uh, James, he's not in- interested in just concepts and theories, but he's interested in the nitty-gritty day-to-day life of what it looks like to be a Christian. And he describes what faith looks like when it is alive and when it is in action. And throughout the letter, it's reasonable to say that he's been making a case that even if you profess to be Christian, to love Jesus, to follow him, if there is no tangible fruit or evidence that kind of shows up in your life, that kind of attests to that reality, James actually has no problem saying that you should question the legitimacy of that faith. I know a lot of us grow up in a context where we just kind of don't go there. Uh, No matter how someone's living or how they're behaving, we never really say, hey, are you really a Christian? Or are you really following Jesus? But James goes there. He has no problem going there. He says, hey, there's some implications that are very reasonable as a Christian to make. And if you're not living out those implications for an extended period of time, you should really question, not to say you're not a Christian, but how do you know you are? And that's kind of where James goes. And so in the past two weeks in particular in chapter four, we see James, he's been painting this picture of what a Christian simply cannot be involved in, which is what he calls worldliness. And I define worldliness to basically you live in a manner that excludes God doesn't matter about what wealth status you are, where in the world you live. Everyone can be worldly. In particular here in the comfortable Orange County bubble we live in, it's so easy to be worldly. It's so easy to live feeling like we don't need God. And this shows up, we've seen the way we selfishly live in relationships, how instead of loving people, we use people, in the way we pridefully plan our lives, thinking, man, my life's going to go the way I think it's going to go. And in our text today, James directly addresses uh, another one of the main arenas where worldliness typically shows up. And it is an arena that's often uncomfortable to talk about, especially in the church, but it's because it has to do with the topic of money. 
He, he zeroes in on your bank account, on your wallet, and he's not talking about money for money's sake, okay? He's not a financial advisor, he's a pastor. But as we've been seeing, these larger external issues like the way we talk or the way we make plans, these are actually, as James would say, revealers and windows into the soul. As one commentator puts it, the way we handle our wealth is very much an indicator of our spiritual health. So that being in mind, if you can have your Bibles or programs, let's turn to our text for today in James chapter 5. We're going to be reading from verse 1 to 8. And as we open God's word, can we all stand together? Uh, As here at our church, we believe that God is living and active and speaking, especially through his word. So as we uh, read God's word together from James chapter 5, verse 1, it's the reading of God's word. Come now, you rich people, weep and wail over the miseries that are coming on you. Your wealth has rotted and your clothes are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver are corroded, and their corrosion will be a witness against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have stored up treasure in the last days. Look, the pay that you withheld from the workers who mowed your fields cries out, and the outcry of the harvesters has reached the ears of the Lord of armies. You have lived luxuriously on the earth and have indulged yourselves. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned, you have murdered the righteous who does not resist you. Verse 7. Therefore, brothers and sisters, be patient until the Lord's coming. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth and is patient with it until it receives the early and the late rains. You also must be patient. Strengthen your hearts because the Lord's coming is near. Amen. It's the reading of God's word. Let me pray for us. Father, as we open your word. As we always ask humbly that your spirit would come, would speak mightily, clearly, and in a manner that really helps us to deeply consider who you are and who we are to be in light of who you are. So bless our time together. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. So happy last uh, Sunday of June. Uh, I don't know if you feel this way, but I feel like time is flying. It's crazy to think that it's almost July. I think part of it is because it doesn't feel like summer. Uh, If anything, summer was like December. I don't know if you guys remember. December was like super hot. June has been like oddly overcast, so it doesn't really feel like summer here. Uh, But end of the month is usually a rhythmic time for me and maybe for many of us where I kind of like take care of a lot of my financial responsibilities. So I'll look at all my bank accounts to pay off bills. I'll look through credit card statements, make sure I'm kind of good to go from what's happened this past month and what's to come in the coming month. And typically, I don't really look too deeply uh, at my financial transactions. I just kind of generally say, okay, how much did we spend on a macro level? Okay, I got to pay it off. But in light of preparing for this sermon, because it's such a particular topic of money, I actually took the time to like go in the trees a little bit. So if I normally kind of hover around the forest of my finances, I went into the trees and I looked at the past few months where the transactions and it was pretty eye-opening. I don't know if you've ever done it before, but I I highly encourage you to do that, to see what you're actually spending your money on. Uh, One thing that came out to light very clearly is I uh, clearly have an addiction to coffee, (laughs) It'd be, uh, I would be ashamed to tell you how much money I spend on coffee, but less ashamed because I know a lot of you do too, because I see you there, <laughs> right? At Stereoscope Coffee, which is right down the street, I think our church funds 20% of their profits. I really do think so. And coffee's expensive, right? Iced vanilla latte with oat milk, less sweet, go-to order, seven fifty. That's crazy to think, right? So you drink that even a couple times, that's easily $20, $25 a week. Also, I don't, I don't realize this because, you know, the way companies get you is by passive subscriptions, but I have a lot of entertainment subscriptions, uh, Netflix, Disney+, Spotify, all kinds of things that I'm paying money, which tells me like, oh, I, I'm actually kind of value entertainment because I'm willing to pay monthly for these things. 
And it was not only interesting to see what I spent money on, but kind of who I spent money on. So I looked at each itemized transaction. I'm like, what was this for? Who was this for? Oh, it was for me. Who was this for? Oh, that was for me as well. And I was like, wow, I spent a lot of money on myself, right? Money, it just tells you very objectively. And as I sat there scrolling through my bank statement, kind of made me re-look at like, what actually is my approach to money? Like, how do I handle and what is my perspective towards money? And so to kick off the sermon, I would ask you the same question. Have you actually seriously thought about what is your perspective and approach towards money? Maybe for some of you, your default, whether you know it or not, is just save, save, save. You don't even know why you're this way, but you will decline to hang out because you want to save money and cook on your own. You don't like spending money because you're very conservative. Saving is the way to go. So maybe that's your approach. Maybe some of you guys, it's more about life is to be enjoyed, so money is there for me to spend. So when I get a paycheck that's $3,000, that's $3,000 for me to enjoy on things I want to buy, things I want to experience, food I want to eat. Whatever the case is, I think um, a lot of us grew up in contexts where we actually probably weren't really taught and discipled well when it comes to money. I know I wasn't, even though I grew up in the church. I think maybe we were taught very generically, hey, money, be careful about it, or money can have like kind of evil connotations, but how to actually manage and, and approach money as a Christian was not really taught well in my life. So I feel like for a lot of us, if you're like me, you're kind of left to figure it out as you go, figure it out as you go. And I'm, I'm, I'm kind of like surprised to think like, oh, many of us maybe were like in our mid-30s or early 30s, I would say maybe it's very underdeveloped when it comes to our understanding of financial stewardship and how we should approach it as Christians. And the Bible, it would say that's not normal or that's not okay because money plays such a big deal in our life. Again, there's so many stats I could point to, but there's 500 verses on prayer, about 500 verses on faith in the New Testament. There's over 2,000 verses on money and possessions because it matters. It's important. Uh, I'm thankful at our church we have no problem talking about money. In the past year or so, we've talked about this topic as it comes up through scripture. Jesus talks about it in the Sermon on the Mount. We preached on it. We did a series on practicing the way of Jesus and simplicity. We talked about it. So I'm just carrying on this idea that we've been talking about. And I encourage you, go back and listen to those sermons because they were so good. But in our text today, James, he kind of specifically and harshly, if I might add, addresses the rich people of that day. And he calls out unashamedly their worldly approach to their wealth and finances. And he has some pretty strong things to say. Most commentators would agree this is the harshest portion of the, script, of the text in James's letter. And whether we consider ourselves rich or not, although I can make a case that we are, that we are the top 1% of the world, I think the worldly approach that he addresses, it can be at work in all of our lives today. And so to break down what he says, just two simple ways we're going to look at it. What is the worldly approach to money that it was present back then that James addresses? What is then a godly approach, a God-considering approach, and a couple of just very practical applications that we can do this week as a church. So first, worldly approach. It's clear in verse 1, again, the audience James has in mind is the rich people. That's what he says in verse 1. Come now, you rich people. It's also clear that his message is not one of encouragement. It's one of judgment and condemnation, right? He leads in by saying, hey, rich people, weep and wail over the mysteries. And that's basically Old Testament language for like the way you're approaching your finances and money, it's deserving of judgment, and if you carry on in that way, it's going to be judged by God. That's literally what he's saying. 
Now, I want to clarify, there's nothing biblically wrong with being rich. There's plenty of godly rich people throughout Scripture. In fact, the fathers of faith, Moses and Abraham, they were very rich people. God uses rich people for his purposes. And so one commentator named Albert Barnes, he clarifies, what is James calling out? It's not wealth. It says, and I quote, there's no sin in merely being rich. Where sin exists peculiarly among the rich, it arises from the manner in which wealth is acquired, the spirit which it tends to engender in the heart, and the way in which it is used. So money itself is not the problem. It's how do you get it, how do you view it, and how do you use it? And so obviously the temptation is greater the more you have. That's the implication. And there's three aspects to this worldly approach that James calls out and condemns in particular. The first thing he describes in this worldly approach is the manner in which these rich people would hoard their wealth. H-O-A-R-D, hoard it. In the first century, there's basically three ways that you would indicate that you're wealthy. You could grow crops. It was an agrarian society. You could sell fabric. Or you could store up precious metals like gold and silver. Grains, garments, and gold. And the image idea James takes issue is that these rich people are hoarding and amassing all three of these things in such an excessive manner to the point that they can't even keep track of how much they have. That's why their grain is rotting, their clothes is being eaten up by moths, and their precious metals are rusting and corroding, meaning they're just sitting there. In other words, the issue here is not that they have these things, but they clearly are possessing far more than they need, and they own them to not really use these things, but seemingly to have them as a display of wealth or status. Now, I don't know about you, I never went over someone's house and saw a bunch of grain hoarded, right? I don't think that applies to us. If you hoard grain, that's kind of interesting, right? But we don't do that. And I don't think many people have bars of gold lying around. One thing we do have is we all have clothes. And I think we can relate to this one. Uh, Every now and then, uh, my wife, Angela, and I will go look at houses just to see what's kind of out there, what the market's looking like. And I've come to a general conclusion, older houses, one of the common things between older houses, their closets are small. They don't have big closets. Whereas now in more newer homes, it's almost standard to have a walk-in, almost bedroom-sized closet. And I did a quick search on this to see kind of the evolution of the closet. And apparently walk-in closets, they're a relatively recent phenomenon. In other words, we would go to a house built in the 50s and say, your closet's so small. They would come to a house now and be like, your closets are so big. It's just perspective. And where did this idea of like having a massive wardrobe even come from? It became popularized through, I might be kind of telling my age here, but there used to be a show called Cribs, MTV Cribs. And back then, it would follow celebrities, and they would open up their homes and be like, come on into my house. And one of the things that they would always do is like, look at my wardrobe, look at my closet. And you'd see hundreds of pairs of shoes, hundreds of clothing items and all of these things. And kind of with that pop culture phenomenon, it kind of became a thing where your wardrobe is now more than just functional use, but it kind of represents something about you. It's funny, I was doing some research. There's a popularized term, I don't know if you heard of it before, it's called ORS. Outfit Reputation Syndrome, which is basically this condition that you vow to never wear the same outfit twice. (laughs) Outfit Reputation Syndrome, where you cannot conceive of the idea that I wear this shirt and I wear it again. And this is actually a common thing. And the article goes on to say, maybe this won't apply to you as an adult, but it might apply to you as a parent, where your 10-month-old Outfit Reputation Syndrome, he never wears the same outfit once or twice. Now, why am I talking about this? I'm just trying to clarify. It's not sinful to have a big closet or to wear nice clothes. What James is getting at is if you are hoarding these things to the point of excess and waste, 
whether it be food, clothing, gadgets, or whatever, you might be flirting into the territory of being materialistic and worldly. This is what Sam Albury says, his commentator. He says, quote, We live in a society where accumulation is seen as good in its own right. Amassing money and possessions is commended. It is one of the ways that we as a culture measure someone's success in life. The more you have, the better you've done. And James says, no, that's not the case for a Christian approach. The second thing he calls out how these rich people live self-indulgent lives. So they're not only hoarding, but their MO towards finances is self-indulgence. Look at verse 5. You've lived luxuriously on the earth. You have indulged yourself. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. Basically, James is saying it's not wrong to enjoy nice things. It's not like he's calling out those who drive a Tesla or eat nice steaks. He's saying the deeper issue is that the silver lining in the way you spend money has the singular goal of indulging yourself. It's just about you, what you want, what you want to buy, how you want to spend your money. And we've seen throughout James' letter and pretty much the entire New Testament, that is so contrary to the call of what it means to follow Christ. Self-indulgence, whereas the call to discipleship is self-denial. It is padding your life versus sacrificing your life. And James is generally saying it's just incompatible with the call to discipleship to have money be a catalyst to grow your self-indulgence. And it's very graphic. He says, if you do that, the image is like a cow that's eating to its heart content, not knowing that it's going to just end up being slaughtered. That's literally what he says, straight from the text. The third thing he calls out how these rich people would practice injustice. I found this part actually really fascinating. Look at verse 4. He says, look... The pay you withheld from the workers who mowed your fields cries out, and the outcry of the harvesters has reached the ears of the Lord of armies. Now, what's going on here? In context, the rich people here was addressing, they were landowners. And the way that landowners would secure labor in the first century, they wouldn't have contracts or hired labor. They would get day laborers. So in the morning, they would go pick up some workers and make a deal, kind of verbally saying, hey, if you help me from 9 to 5 today, at the end of the day, I'll pay you X amount of money. And so these workers would trust their word, They would put in a hard day's work. But basically what these rich people would do is when the end of the day would come, they would unjustly either underpay or deceive these people. So, for example, if they say, hey, I'll pay $100, 5 o'clock comes, they might say something like, actually, oh, you know what, Uh, can I pay you tomorrow? Or they'll say something like, did I say 100 Actually, I only have 80 So they were selling them short. They were not giving them fair wage. Now, big deal, right? Like, okay, I could see, see people doing that all the time. So it's not the situation that's interesting. The part I want to point out is how intimately God cares about and is involved in that seemingly pointless situation. It literally says, say you promise to pay someone $50. Like, hey, you help me build a crib at my house, I'll pay you $50, and then they help you build it, and you underpay them, and you give them $30 instead. The $20 you owe them, James is saying, it's crying out to the Lord. That's the imagery there. Like, The wage you promise to give, it is making a plea before God, and not just God whoever, but the name used there is very particular, is Jehovah Saboeth, which translates Lord of hosts or Lord of armies, which paints the picture that God, he is a God who commands a host of angelic warriors, and whenever the Lord of hosts is used, it's particularly highlighting God's inclination to act on behalf of the oppressed. When he says things like father to the fatherless, protector of the widows, usually it's tied to his title of being the Lord of Armies, meaning he has a particular defense mechanism against when poor people and needy people are being mistreated. And so James calls out these worldly people and their hoarding, their self-indulgence and their injustice and says, if you live that way, how do you know you're actually Christian 
and you don't have judgment awaiting you because the way your money is talking, it reveals you don't really truly know God. Now again, I know as I was preparing this sermon, I was kind of like struggling because I felt more inclined to think our church doesn't really struggle with this. I don't think many of you are bosses or CEOs with employees. I actually think many of us have a pretty decently sober perspective towards money. But I also realized it's because maybe generally speaking, we're pretty young as a church. I think a lot of us were just starting to make some actually legit money or we're still early on in our money-making career. So maybe your philosophy is still being formed. And I think there's generally three categories of people in this room. There are those who have a healthy view of money, which I think you understand it's about generosity. Money is there to be used for God's purposes. I think some of you have an unhealthy view of money, which is it's mine, it's for self-indulgence. But I actually think the vast majority of you, and myself was included in this, there's a third category, which is you just don't really see it connected to your faith. Money is just a separate thing. Like you do your Sunday thing, you do your God thing, but money and how you spend it, it's totally irrelevant to how you understand your relationship with God. And that's where James says that should not be. And leads to point number two, what is the godly approach then when it comes to money? You know, as you read this text, I think a very reasonable question to ask, especially if you're not a Christian, is why is God so nosy? And why does God have such a strong say on how I ought to spend my hard-earned money? Isn't that true? Like imagine if you got a paycheck of $5,000 and then you look back and I'm hovering over you and I'm like, well done. You made a lot of good money. Now here's what you're going to spend it on. I feel like you would laugh at my face. Like what gives you the right to have any jurisdiction over my hard-earned money? And therein lies the fundamental difference between a worldly and godly perspective towards money. You see, again, as I've been saying the past two weeks, worldliness at its core is living life in a way that excludes God. So naturally then, a worldly approach to money is intrinsically rooted in the understanding that my money is mine. God has nothing to do with my money. Sure, as a Christian, I profess God is sovereign and conceptually you get, sure, God is, you know, all things are his. But functionally and practically speaking, I worked hard to earn this money, so it's mine. The Bible paints a very different picture. 1 Corinthians 4, 7, it says, For who makes you so superior? What do you have that you didn't receive? And if in fact you did receive it, why do you boast as if you hadn't received it? The baseline Christian core conviction that we need to come to grips with is everything we have and everything we own right here, right now belongs to God. Now that should not be a new concept, but maybe it's one we forgot. The idea is all throughout the Bible, in the Old Testament, in the book of Proverbs, in the teachings of Jesus, in the parables Jesus teaches, there are countless parables where he says, in this life, you're not an owner, you're a steward. You're managing my things. You're managing my money. So the question is, do you use your money and your things in light of that reality? Because only then, if that, if that is the case, that's the only way that would make sense of how angry God gets over how we spend our money, is it not? Let me give you an illustration of this. For example, if you say you were coming to worship and you were, you're, you're late, okay? So you're coming late, you start speeding because, like, man, I, got, I value coming on time at 11 a.m., okay? I hope this was true, right? You're finally getting on time, you rush, and you, you run into a fence, and you, you hit the bumper of your car, and you're like, dang it, Pastor Sam, I got into a mini accident on my, uh, you know, fence, and uh, what do I do? If you told me that, I would say, like, man, I feel really bad for you, but I wouldn't be angry. I'd be like, it's fine. Like, just come a little bit late. But if I let you borrow my car, say you're like, oh, I don't have a car this weekend. I was like, you know what? Here's the keys to my car. 
take good care of it, okay, it's my car, I want you to manage over it, and you told me the same story, I would not only say that sucks, I would be mad. <laughs> I'd be angry. And so that's literally what's going on here. God is angry because we're dealing with his stuff. Here's a side-by-side chart that kind of shows the difference. I'm not going to talk about all the questions, but I want to highlight particularly the bottom one. The fundamental difference between someone with a worldly versus godly approach has to do with the implications of what it means to be a steward. And the fundamental difference is there on the bottom. An owner says, how I use my money is my right. I earned it, it's mine, and I decide. A steward understands how I use God's money is my responsibility. There's a vast difference there. And we forget that sometimes, but that's what's going on. And this right here has to register in the deepest parts of our hearts if we're ever going to approach money in a God-honoring stewardship way that we are called to. And so the focal point in this text that grounds James's entire indictment and argument against the rich is this. If it's true that whether you admit it or not that you are simply a steward, here is the reality you have to come to grips with. The owner is coming back. That's his whole point. There will be a day of reckoning, and we will all give account for how we managed his money. That's what's going on here. Look at verse 3. Your gold and silver are corroded. Look at this imagery. They're corrosion. In other words, all the money that you just stashed by yourself that's just sitting there and not being used in the way God says, it's going to witness against you in the last days. In verse 8, strengthen your hearts. Why? Because the Lord is coming. It's a very sobering image. James is essentially not if, but when Jesus returns on his judgment throne and we stand before him to give account, one of the things he will call as witness to testify as believers is this, your bank account. It's a crazy image to think, right? That as I'm standing there on the witness stand, my Chase account's going to show up there and be like, hello, God, right? If bank accounts could talk. I got something to say. Let me testify about, you know, Sam's life. And if it could talk, what would it say about you? If the Lord returned tonight and your bank account came to testify, what would it say? Perhaps for some of us it would say, God, this man or woman always stayed on top of the latest fashion trends. There was never a new clothing vibe that they did not get on. They ate the best food. They kept up with the top five hottest new restaurants in Orange County. They lived a full and enjoyable, indulgent life. The end. Now here's a better question though. Not what would it say, but what would you want your bank account to say about the life you lived? Now we're getting a little bit deeper here. See, when I am walking in the spirit, here's what I hope it would say about me. God, Sam, based off the way he understood and used money, he cared about the poor and the needy, He invested in the great commission of making sure the gospel advances. He lived within his means, used his money to help others, took care of his family. Oh, how I wish that would be the testimony against me. Now, it's one thing to understand the call to stewardship and giving an account. But because I kind of know the nature of our church, most likely at this point, the feeling you're having is not one of privilege and joy to now step into this stewardship. It's one of guilt and and legalism, right? Right? All right, so James is saying, okay, I got to live this way, so I got to forego eating, you know, those good foods and drinking boba, and I guess I got to, like, you know, like, tithe or something. Like, that might be the thing you're thinking right now. So it's another thing to, it's one thing to, again, grasp the command. It is a whole other thing, and arguably the more important thing, to actually desire to live in that way. 
Is it not? And that's what scripture is really getting at. It doesn't want your religious obedience. It wants your desire. Like, do you want to do this? In other words, how do we make a godly, selfish, generous approach to money, not just a religious obligation, but a lifestyle we actually want to pursue? And that's helpful to look at what Jesus actually says. Now, it's very clear from Matthew 6, this is where James got his inspiration, but here's what it says in Matthew 6, 20, verse 21. Look, does Jesus say, forego your worldly pleasures and just do it because that's what a Christian is? No, look what he says. Lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys, sound familiar, and where thieves do not break in and steal, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Jesus is not saying, don't spend money on things you want. He's saying, spend money on things that actually have value. That's what he's saying. Here's what I'm getting at. I think all of us, whether Christian or not, don't we intrinsically appreciate lasting value? Like we invest in things that last ideally. And most cases, we're willing to pay more for things that have lasting value. For example, when I get an oil change, I always get asked the same question. Sam, do you want the cheap $25 or do you want like the $60 synthetic stuff? And initially I'll say, cheap for sure. And he'll say, but synthetic lasts like triple the amount. And I'll say, synthetic for sure. Why? Because I don't like making those trips. Why not pay a little more for lasting value? We all kind of get that concept. And here is the conundrum and dilemma that scripture paints though, especially for materialistic people. Because the inevitable reality is that every single material thing in this world, and try to disprove this, has a shelf life. It has an expiration date. There's absolutely nothing on this physical planet that you can invest in that will last. Uh, I've been recently cleaning out my garage with my wife, and I'm surprised how much stuff we have. I used to always make fun of that show, Hoarders, because I'm like, dude, just throw it away. And I realize I'm a hoarder, right? I'll look at something that's like no value. It could literally be like a, a plush doll. I'd be like, no, <laughs> we got to keep it. I'll throw it in a trash bag. It'll last another five years, and it's the same there, just collecting dust, right? And it's kind of crazy how we have that nature. But what's sobering is some of that stuff that's now just stuffed away in a trash bag and collecting dust, a few years ago, I saw it as absolutely necessary in my life. There's a pair of Nike shoes I remember I was like waiting for it to come out. I was like, oh, this is going to like make me so cool and stuff. That shoe, I could care less now. I donated it. There's a brand new MacBook 2012. But at that time, I was like, this is going to make my life. Now, Ezra uses it. He's going, da, 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 right? Because it doesn't matter anymore. Or an old iPhone. The next big thing is never going to stay the next big thing. And so the great equalizer for all of us is if that's not argument enough, doesn't matter if you're a billionaire or if you're going paycheck by paycheck, when you come to the end of your life, you each take the same thing across, which is nothing. You leave everything at the door. And so Jesus isn't saying, too bad for you now, Christian. Now you understand I have money, I, your money is mine, and you have to forego your life. No, no, no. Because if you actually talk to people who live in that worldly way, hoarding, self-indulgence, injustice, it would be a hard biblical case if they're living enjoyable lives, wouldn't it? Like, what's so wrong with that? You know who's lining up because of mental health issues? Who's saying, I want to I be generous because money ain't it? It's the richest people in the world. In other words, Jesus knows what he's talking about. That pursuit is futile. It's not hard to see that in real life. So what Jesus is presenting is not this religious life-sucking alternative, he's presenting an alternate approach to investment that taps outside of the material world and into heaven itself. Because that's the only way. 
something that has lasting eternal value. And here's the problem that we have such a hard time grasping that. When I thought about what has lasting value, I tried to think of like, what is that thing? And this shows how materialistic we are. Because when we say something that has lasting value, don't you think of an object you can hold? Like an, like an eternal bowl of pho or something like that? Like lasting value or like a super laptop. We're so materialistic. Who said it's a material? The type of treasure that has heavenly and lasting value where neither moth nor rust destroys and thieves can't break in. In other words, it cannot be material because if it is material, it is subject to corrosion, it is subject to be stolen. The only thing that lasts into heaven itself is not accumulating stuff, but it's things that are spent for and on people. Because you know who crosses into eternity? People. Relationships. The essence of Christianity is a lifestyle rooted in Jesus' own life, where he understood that value. He was not rich. They didn't accumulate much. He was homeless. But I would argue he was the greatest investor this world has ever seen. Invested in relationships, in people, in disciples, loving, sacrificing, serving others above himself. And that's why it makes a lot of sense. I always found it interesting. Why does he say you can't serve God and money? Like, why not something else? Why God and money? And I think there's a correlation here because one will overtake the other. Either your money will help you serve your relationships or your relationships will serve your love for money. You want to know how this plays out? Just look at any family breakdown. Number one cause for divorce, money. Family breakdown drama, money. Always about money. And the flip side of that, when does a family really come together? We love and serve even at the cost of money because it's about relationship. The clearest example of this is in the death of Jesus himself. No credit to me. I never saw this insight, but there's such a beautiful, clear example of this personified in the moments leading up to Jesus' death. In the gospel accounts, there's a familiar but maybe not as familiar story of a woman named Mary. She comes and she sees Jesus, and Jesus is on his way again to be crucified. So it's, in a sense, a funeral march days before. And she anoints Jesus' feet with this very expensive ointment. You guys might have known it, right? Some headings in scripture call it an extravagant love. Extravagant meaning she's almost excessively doing this. And the reason it's called that, because that ointment was cost 300 denarii. One denarii is a day's wage. So it is a year's worth of wage. So if I just use a modern illustration, maybe $50,000 for this small ointment. That she, in a sense, in a worldly sense, wastes on Jesus, Right? And what's interesting that kind of I never really noticed is the Bible makes it a point to highlight, you know who was there when that happened? Judas. And it pissed him off. Why? Because what is Judas's operating thing? Money. So he says, what a waste. Why would you waste that? I could, you could spend that money on something else. And not too long after that, that value fruitions, because you know why? What does Jesus get crucified for? He gets sold. Judas sells Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. So you have Mary, who's seeing the beauty of Christ. There is no cost she would not pay. And then you have Judas, who has a price point for his devotion to Christ. Now, it's very scary to think. But I think some of us have that price point as well. At what point are you willing to sell out for Christ? Not too long after that, Judas sells Jesus for 30 pieces of silver, and that's why the call to discipleship can be nothing less than you are willing to give all that you have, because if not, 
that implies there's a price you're willing to pay to give up Christ. That's, that's basically what it means. And it's a fundamental misunderstanding of his worth and value. And what we see in these two people is the personification of a worldly versus godly approach to money. Mary understood the infinite value and worth of Christ and that loving and serving him was worth any amount. In other words, no limit to the price she was willing to pay. On the contrary, Judas loved the world, loved money, and he hit that price point. So going back to the question earlier, what motivates our desire to live this way beyond an obligation? It's Christ. It always will be Christ. The immeasurable beauty, worth, value, and deep gratitude and understanding of cost that he has paid for us, that I don't do this because I have to. It's not easy. Don't get me wrong. The rest of the text talks about, man, the Christian life, it is a grueling grind. You got to be patient. You have to persevere. It's not a sprint. It's going to take an entire lifetime. But he says, be patient like the farmer. That day will come. I love how Martin Luther puts it. Uh, this was a quote I used to love, and I kind of reawakened in my heart. He says, the way he lives his life, he says, there are two days in my calendar. There is this day, today, and this applies to the sermon I gave recently, right? Live for the day. And then there is that day, which is the day of the Lord's return. And he says, everything in between those two days now shapes my focal point and perspective on how I live. Today and that day. And you forget any one of those things, you're going to kind of derail as a Christian. So are we prepared for the owner and master's return? Now, Quick two-minute application. So it's clear, again, our, our stewarding of our wealth is a reveal of our spiritual health. So how can we grow in this very practically? Number one, obviously pastors are always shy to talk about this, but I think it's directly in the text. Every Sunday there's an opportunity to give. It's not by compulsion. It's not by obligation. We make it very clear. At the same time, it's very scripturally grounded that, hey, do you give to the church? Do you give to the Lord's work? And, uh, you know, stats aren't everything, but there's something. 31% of all regular churchgoers don't give a cent to the church. And that's actually very telling. That's very interesting to see. And every week, if you're like, how do I go about this? That's one very tangible, practical opportunity. And don't think, well, I'm not the tithe police. Okay, I'm not going to call you after it's like, hey, did you hear that message? It's not that at all. It is an invitation to something that we have regular opportunity to do. Two. Do you have a general line in your life of excess and hoarding that you are watchful for? Again, that line, it's not clear cut. That's why the Bible doesn't say you can only have an X amount of money or X amount of cars. It's different. But I think the Bible would make the case, though, you do need a line where at some point now you're kind of blurring into materialism and worldliness. And at what point is that for you as the Spirit convicts? But lastly, as we close, are you generous? And I think part of generosity is not willingness just, but it is a seeking out of opportunities to be generous. I've shared this before. I was always challenged by a married couple who said, you know, you're not going to be generous by accident. So what he did was him and his, his wife, they said, they're going to create a generosity fund. And every month, we're going to set us out a couple hundred dollars where we're going to seek out opportunities to be generous. And guess what? If you seek it out, they're usually there. And he said, instead of waiting them to come to us, we would go to them and our church, we've been a recipient of some of this. I mean, one of those things, the generosity, uh, the bags, I was so floored to hear because I was like, okay, we're going to ask the church to, you know, you know, donate for the gift cards. By the way, the gift cards are for the people, not for you, <laughs> just in case you didn't know, right? I was like, I wonder if we didn't make that clarification, like, ooh, granola bars, gift cards for me, right? No, that's not what's going on here, obviously. But what, what, what happened is someone was listening to that call to seek out opportunities. An opportunity was given. We want to be generous as a church, and they basically said, let me cover that. 
Not because they had to, but they're, they're wanting to. And man, another example of this, I think relationships, a lot of it is around the table, around food. I'm always so encouraged at our community groups. A lot of them do a rotation system where people like say, hey, I'll, I'll, take, I'll cover a meal and I'll pay for it. Just know it's very burdensome um, as a community group leader sometimes when you're like, hey, I'm going to make a meal rotation and we're all going to go around and it's empty. <laughs> it's like, all right, I'm going I'm going to pay this week again. I'm going to pay that week again. And so what I would say is like, you know, even if you're willing, go beyond being willing. Like, volunteer. Make it a point to say, hey, let's do it. And this, whether it's community group meals, uh, some of the members of our church, they're always looking out for us, even like as a staff. Uh, with no, no invitation whatsoever, sometimes they messaged us during, when we were doing COVID. There was a virtual worship. A sister in our church, again, very low-key way, not trying to get any sort of glamour. She was just like, hey, you guys are doing virtual worship, right? Can I just buy a meal for you guys? And we're so blessed. So blessed. And I think what James is saying is when you live in that way, we are collectively, corporately making eternal investments for the church, for each other, and we'll all be blessed as a result of that. So that's the final call. Just how is your money indicating and the way you look at wealth indicating the status of your spiritual health. I invite the praise team up if we can close in just a prayer topic. And I recognize this is just a very straightforward topic that James addresses. Maybe it's one that we don't really consider and think about, but as the entire letter has been saying, Christianity is very practical. It shows up in the day-to-day life and transactions we make. And so if you could just consider, what is your stance? If you have a healthier one, that God will continue to strengthen you to persevere. Maybe there's areas you need to grow in and you have been living in a worldly way when it comes to that. Or maybe like a lot of people, you just didn't realize, oh, this is a spiritual category. Whatever it might be, just pray that God gives you strength to have this kind of perspective and then I'll pray for us.